Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to today's Determined Truth Podcast. Today I am delighted to have with me Dr. Tripper Longman. Tremper is a distinguished scholar and professor emeritus of biblical studies at Westmont, at Westmont College. Prior to joining Westmont in 1998, he had taught for 18 years at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's a prolific author, contributed to a number of commentaries, including commentaries on the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, the Book of Daniel, Jeremiah and Lamentations. He's also written the Baker Old Testament Wisdom series uh, book on Proverbs. He's written How to Read the Psalms, How to Read the Book of Genesis. He and Raymond Dillard wrote an introduction to the Old Testament. He and John Walton recently wrote a book called The Lost World of the Flood, Mythology, Theology, and the Deluge Debate. In addition to that, he's a senior translator for the Wisdom Books on the Central Committee that produced and now monitors the New Living Translation. And we're here today to discuss his newest book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Pressing Questions About Evolution, Sexuality, History, and Violence. Tremper is also married to his wife, Alice, and has three sons, and he's an ardent fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, and as a New England Patriots fan, Tremper, I don't know how much you know this hurts, but I want to say congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. I appreciate that, uh, though uh, you had a great victory at the end of the last season. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that is true, so thank you. That can make you more magnanimous. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so, but nonetheless, congratulations. So, uh, Trump, I noted here, my, my only co- criticism of your book is maybe that the title is a bit, a bit off. You titled the book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Pressing Questions About Evolution, Sexuality, History, and Violence. Uh, and in reality, you deal with the New Testament a lot. And I think you do a very good job of handling the, the New Testament, especially, we'll get to it later on, but the issue of sexuality. Yeah, I, that's true. Um, though it's often categorized as uh, issues with the Old Testament that lead Christians to kind of dismiss or ignore the Old Testament, and but it definitely takes you into the New Testament as well, because all those issues have uh, important ramifications uh, for our understanding of the New Testament as well. That's right. So let's begin with the first section, Tremper. You start off with science and faith, and you describe yourself as an evolutionary creationist which you distinguish from like the intelligent design as well as from theistic evolutionists. And so can you define for us what you mean by evolutionary creationist and, and how it differs from other viewpoints? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, first of all, I would begin by saying an evolutionary creationist uh, understands that while the Bible tells us that God created everything, including human beings, us, uh, it doesn't tell us how he did it, that the depiction of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is is done using figurative language, uh, which I could give examples of later if, if you want. Uh, so, so it allows us to turn to science and ask the question, how? And right now the best uh, theory is that uh, that God used evolution. That's not the scientific conclusion. That's the theological perspective on the scientific conclusion that God used evolution to create human beings. And that differs from, you know, the other three major viewpoints that would be represented by intelligent design. 
which argues that there are certain things that evolutionary theory can't uh, can't explain, and therefore uh, means that evolution isn't true, and that's evidence for God. Or for, of course, young Earth creationists like, right. say, Ken Ham and the Answers in Genesis group, right. uh, which take the uh, description of Genesis 1 and 2, I think, wrongly, according to its original intention, as some kind of description of how God created creation, and also takes the genealogies of Genesis in such a way as to, again, I believe, wrongly try to argue that the cosmos and the earth are only a few thousand years old and then it even differs from some old earth creationists like say you ross of reasons to believe and people associated with him who while believing that the the cosmos and the earth are old that um that god created human beings by a special act of creation uh rather than using a um, providentially guided process uh, like evolution. Okay, excellent. All right, that makes great sense. So one of the points that you make in your opening discussion on science is that many young people are abandoning the faith because they find uh, it antagonistic to science. And I think that this should sound the alarms for the church. Uh, uh, some will contend, though, that we can't really change our theology or biblical understanding just because it runs counter to maybe what the culture is saying out there. What do you think about that? Sure, and I, I agree with that. We shouldn't change our understanding of the Bible uh, in order to conform to the culture, um, and that's that's for sure. But for the, one of the first things I would say is the reading of Genesis that I'm that I do is not anything new. I mean, it goes back to ancient church fathers like Augustine and Jerome. I mean, there have always been people. I mean, not Jerome, but Origen. There have always been people through the ages who have recognized that Genesis 1 and 2 aren't giving us some kind of uh, literal depiction of the of the process of creation. And so um, Augustine said, you know, they're not solar days. Um, even B.B. Warfield understood that uh, it wasn't giving kind of a literal depiction, and he was open at least to the possibility of a providentially guided evolution. So, so I think, first of all, it's a misimpression to think that uh, the kind of reading of Genesis that I'm doing is a totally new thing. It's been attested through the history of interpretation. But I would also go on to suggest that sometimes science can help us read the Bible better, right? Because it's um, it's it's analyzing nature and the Belgic Confession, based on passages like Romans one twenty, talks about how um, how God speaks to us through two books: one the scriptures, and yeah. the other one the Book of Nature. Uh, there are different types of speaking to us and um and and i don't want to say that one trumps the other what i want to say is when when um when both are interpreted correctly they're not going to contradict each other so we ought to at least be open to scientific conclusions particularly ones that are so strongly and heavily and repeatedly over 150 years right have been 
evidenced, um, you know, through fossil evidence and genomic evidence and other lines of evidence as well. Yeah, yeah, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but it seems like it's not much different than all of a sudden going, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe the Earth's not the center of the solar system. Maybe after right, all, it is yeah. a sun, and we need to reread what we're thinking of in terms of the biblical text. Yeah, exactly, Rob. I think that uh, we ought to learn a lesson from mm -hmm. that, uh, what's often called Galileo episode, right. where, uh, uh, and, and it was a little complicated at the time of Galileo, too. It wasn't as if all the people in the, all the theologians were insisting on a, on, a, you know, an Earth-centric right. cosmos. Um, nor that all the secular scientists were, were, uh, were arguing for a heliocentric. But still, the point is, that's a good example of how science can help us read the Bible better. Uh, excellent. Now, so you go into great depth, and I encourage the readers to get your book and read through it, and, and, and talking about how the biblical accounts are really not a problem for modern science, and uh, um, your discussion that Genesis is, is using figurative language, but that it's still, at least the early chapters of Genesis are, but that it's still yeah. describing actual events. And so yes. you, you don't deny that God created humanity, even if you accept an evolutionary explanation that maybe it wasn't two individual humans. Uh, nor deny deny the, the account of the fall. So so then, you know, and I read that and I go, okay, okay, great. But then there's that you know that modernist in me, right? That, that we all have that says, okay, yeah, but what does that really mean? You know, what what was the actual event of Adam and Eve and and, and or the fall? And if it wasn't two people in a garden with a walking talking snake, you know, then, then kind of what was it? Yeah, no, I think those are good questions, not to be dismissed as simply modernist concerns. There's okay. a lot that's good about modernism, <laughs> by right, the way. Right. But um but uh and 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 actually I think uh as I explain in the book there are certain things that are really clear and really important to insist on theologically because not only can science help us read the Bible better, the Bible can keep science from idolatry and uh, false absolutes. Mm. And we learn things from the Bible, God's uh, uh, primary revelation to us that we can't learn about in, in, in through science. And that's where I differ with one of my uh, good friends and, and kind of dialogue partner in the book, Peter Enns, mm -hmm. who goes on and says, well, you know, science can't establish uh, that humans were innocent, that, that there was a period of time when humans were innocent, and therefore we don't have any real basis to think that there was a historical fall. And my response to that is to say, uh, Pete, that's the function of the Bible to tell us things like that. Right, right. So how you reconcile the two is, um, is a good question to ask and there are also there there actually more than one uh sort of model or scenario that we can talk about but the one that appeals to me the most is that what we have in genesis 2 and 3 isn't the story of the origins of homo sapiens but rather the uh, the 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 origins of human beings who are given the status of being in the image of God, right. and so, um, and that's that's a, I, as I imagine it, I think at the point where Homo sapiens become um, 
you know, morally conscious and, and capable of moral choice and they are innocent at that point and God confers on them the status of being his image bearers, his representatives and the rest of creation and, uh, and gives them the commission to, you know, subdue and rule the earth. And I would see that as a benevolent king, like God himself, mm. um, stewarding the creation, uh, at some point after that, you know, human beings rebel. Now, Adam and Eve might be a representative couple within right. a broader population, or it might be a reference to uh, a certain group of Homo sapiens. There are different scenarios. I, in my book, I consider the one that's most appealing to me. Uh, a friend of mine, Lauren Harzma, is just finishing a book where he considers four different scenarios that are equally uh, plausible. Okay. You present, in fact, if I, if I recall correctly, that, that you know, maybe Adam and Eve are the kingly representatives of the people. Right, yeah, because there's, well, there's a lot of, uh, well, especially in Genesis 1, there's royal language, right. this whole image-bearing thing. But there's also priestly right. language in Genesis too. So, so it might be more than one kind of uh, model being used there, but 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 it's 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 uh, conceivable that we are talking about a representative couple, and uh, and their sin, according to Paul in Romans five twelve and following, uh, affects us all. Right. I believe it doesn't tell us how it affects us all, but it. It does talk about it as the first sin, which introduced death. And I would say, you know, not just death, generally speaking, there's plenty of evidence of mm -hmm. animal death going right. way back. But rather, within the experience of these homo sapiens who have been given the status of image bearers, um, there was the possibility uh, that they would not die um, and so, but they forfeited that, uh, possibility. Yeah. So, um, so I think that, you know, the story of Adam and Eve not only tells us about something that actually happened in the past, a sin that actually happened in the past, because remember, maybe figurative language, but it's talking about historical events, but it also tells us what we would do if we were in their place. Mm -hmm. And it also, yeah. uh, sin so disrupts the cosmic and social order that it's not possible for us not to sin. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is we're all sinners right. we need salvation. Right, right. Now, so do you, you then, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're looking at what we might call the fall, whatever it might be, as an actual historical moment? Yeah, I mean, I, that, again, I think it could be... Uh, a specific moment uh it, it some people think that it might have progressed over time um but i but i i think personally that the idea that there was a either a rebellion uh against god's command um at, by this representative couple or maybe even this representative couple leading this broader group um, um, astray <laughs> so um, so yeah okay. so I think the important thing is that the Bible is telling us that some
something happened in space and time. Uh, excellent. If our listeners want to go forward, uh, go forward a little bit further in um, kind of looking more deeply at what the text of Genesis is saying and what it means, would you recommend, obviously, I, I'd recommend your book, How to Read the Book of Genesis, but would you recommend John Walton's work uh, on here? Uh, yeah, I mean, John and I agree largely, not completely, on that uh, on on these subjects, but yeah, no, I would definitely highly recommend John's work. I mean, and John and I wrote a book together yes. that came out last year on the flood. So yes, where where we deal with these similar issues. Uh, so it's not just Genesis one, two, right. or three, but it's Genesis one to eleven. Correct. So many people were asking us as we were speaking around the country independently and together. You know, well, what about the flood? So yeah. we wrote that book to answer that question. Uh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I really like his functional approach uh, to understanding Genesis from a kind of a functional uh, approach. So let's yeah. let's move on to the second part of your book. Now, the second part of your book, you're dealing with history, um, and let's kind of keep our feet maybe in Genesis for just a moment. I know primarily you're dealing with the Exodus and uh, um, the conquest narrative, but as we as we keep our feet in Genesis, it's common to assert that Genesis one through eleven kind of differs from Genesis twelve through fifty in, in style, at least in ge- generic style. Uh, thus justifying a kind of a different reading strategy for Genesis 1 through 11. What do, what do you think of this, and what's your response? Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I don't talk in terms of a different genre between Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 and following. I think we're talking about uh, theological history. That is, uh, all of Genesis and beyond is talking about things that actually happened in space and time. But there is a different style, So uh, and that... Uh, different style is that those historical events in Genesis 1 to 11 are being described in figurative terms whereas when you get to Genesis 12 you notice a a pretty abrupt and clear change in style because Genesis 1 to 11 has been treating the distant past the whole world as its focus Mm. and it goes rapidly through time whereas Genesis 12 all of a sudden narrative time screeches to almost a halt as we spend the next 12, 13 chapters on one man's life. Uh, and he's 75 when it starts. Right, so right. you could tell there's this new interest in what we might call historical detail when we get to Genesis 12. And you don't have the same kind of figurative language that permeates that and, um, that that section and and so so again i wouldn't talk about it being a different genre and and i i talk in my book about how it's wrong-minded to say well genesis 1 to 11 is myth or genesis 1 to 11 is poetry um and yeah it's it's not either of those um some people particularly in the interest of defending a more literal approach to um, Genesis 1 to 11. And I'll, I'll give the example of Wayne Grudem in his uh, one of his chapters in the Critique of Theistic Evolution, which came out a few months ago or a year ago. He says, it's either myth or history, and here's mm-hmm. why it's history. And when he means history, he means kind of a plain, straightforward, mm. factual presentation and so i criticize wayne's approach and there just as i criticize pete 
ends this approach. Right. And that, that's actually probably even a miscategorization of what myth actually is, is in the ancient world as well, isn't it? Right, yeah, because, uh, well, at least the way scholars use myth. Right. Uh, myth can be historical. Right. But I've just learned over the years that it's just too big <laughs> a uh, barrier to get around. Because okay. once people hear the term myth, they don't think in terms of the more nuanced okay. view of myth that scholars use. So, um, so leave, leave that, that off the table. Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. All right. So your second section then focuses mostly on the historicity of the Old Testament and the book of Exodus in particular, uh, as well as the conquest of Joshua, etc. Uh, I have a degree in history from Cal State, and I remember having numerous discussions years ago with uh, one of my professors, and he, and he was an Egyptologist, and he said, once you show me any evidence that the Israelites lived in Egypt, then, then we can talk. Uh, and, yeah. and so how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, the first thing I would uh, say is, really, I don't think you would expect to find a lot of evidence of Israel being in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians were not in the practice of, of uh, you know, commemorating, <laughs> humiliating defeats. <laughs> Failures, and, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, so, um, so, uh, and, and, in my book, I, I talk about yes. having a similar conversation with a colleague who's an evangelical Old Testament scholar, and uh, he said to me the same thing, you yeah. know, we would expect to have evidence. I said, no, we wouldn't. And he goes, well, we learned about the Hick sauce. And he gave one other example of the Egyptians being defeated. And I said, well, actually, if you think about it, they ultimately defeated the Hyksos, and that's why we hear about the Hyksos. Oh, right, right. So, uh, so there's no happy ending for the Egyptians in the Exodus story. Right. Now, you also noted that that we, when when scholars say these things, they're discounting the Bible as an historical account. I mean, the Bible does tell us that the Israelites were in were in Egypt and that they that they exited right. out and, and all that, and there has to be some credibility given to it as a text. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I make that point when uh, when people say there is no direct evidence. I say, yes, there is. It's called the Bible. <laughs> right, right. And, and then there's indirect evidence. I think one of the, you know, in that conversation I had with my colleague, um, I said to him, look, uh, show me the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I know you believe that that was a historical mm, event. Right. Uh, where's the direct historical evidence for that and he responded by saying well I can't but <laughs> the resurrection had such a dramatic effect on the growth of the church right. and I said well I mean look at Israel uh, the exodus had a dramatic effect on Israel's self consciousness uh, afterwards and it, it there's a very similar kind of relationship between the story of the exodus and uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. Hmm. Now, one of the things that you also point out, though, is that the number of Israelites may actually have only been in the thousands and not in the millions. And of course, if they're in the millions, then you're you're probably going to expect some kind of evidence that they were there. But if they're only in the thousands, right. that might that might mitigate against that a little bit. What leads you to the conclusion that there's maybe only thousands of them and not millions of them? Well, that's a that's a little technical, so uh, so I may not be totally. Per persuasive to people over uh but for one thing there 
are issues with the transmission of numbers. There's questions about how to properly translate the word LF for thousand. Mm. Uh, is it really referring to a thousand individuals or should it be pointed a different way? Mm. But one of the most convincing things to me, and I don't have the exact reference with me now, is that in the book of numbers, it gives, uh, it gives the number of the firstborn of Israel. Mm. Uh, which is way too small to sustain, you know, the a population of like two million. Okay. So there, there are there there are questions about about the numbers, and I I think okay. that um, that is much more likely that it was a smaller group that went up into uh, the promised land, and I think uh, conversely. There might be a larger group of, say, Canaanites that came over to the Israelite side. Okay. You know that, um, and and that leads, by the way, to that there is some indirect evidence of, say, um, Israelites coming into the land, um, and this would be most strong if it is a 13th century Exodus. This appearance of 300. Uh, sort of small village communities in the hill country of of um of the promised land around you know in the late 13th century Mm. so there is also a lot of indirect evidence but i think the most important point i want to make is that um is that it's really important for there to be a historical background to the Exodus in order for it to be theologically significant. Right. This is a case of, of this is a case of, um, of the theology depending on the history. Mm. Very similar again to, you know, if Jesus was not raised, our faith is right. in vain. Um, if the Exodus didn't happen, then how could it really be a testimony to the fact that God can save us? when we're beyond human salvation. <laughs> right. And that runs throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, right? I mean, I mean the prophets are oh, yeah. looking back to the Exodus as the model to say that God's going to rescue from the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And the New yeah. Testament, of course, the book of Revelation is using this Exodus imagery to describe God's deliverance of his people. So it's, it's, it's quite a significant event. Yes, exactly. It just reverberates through the rest of Scripture. Uh, now, uh, now, Pete Enns, of course, a friend of mine as well, um, he suggested the biblical accounts were written kind of in a manner that kind of corresponds to the cultural practices of the time in which they were written. So uh, it, it's written in this context of this moment, historical moment, uh, um, which, of course, he, he puts kind of a, a, at a later date, mind you, which not necessarily is, is, is even a dispute. But what effect does this have on our, understand, on our understanding of the history of the Old Testament? Well, I, first of all, I would agree with Pete that uh, the Bible was written using the conventions of the day, and we have to always remember, and uh, John Walton says this a lot, you know, the Bible wasn't written to us, even though it was written for us. Right. So we do have to read it in its ancient cultural context. I would dispute with Pete that that uh, is a reason to say that you know, the Israelites weren't interested in things that actually happened in space and time. Um, but I would agree with him that as the various uh, Old and New Testament 
um, writers that are talking about the past, whether we're talking about the Gospels or talking about Samuel King's Chronicles or Joshua, that they are interested in communicating a theological message through the um, through the historical events. So it's not again, it's not a just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Mm. You know, uh, it's uh, it's it's talking, uh, it's shaping the historical presentation in a way to tell us something about God and his relationship with his people. So for instance, um, in Joshua 1 through 12, there's obvious, uh, there's an obvious use of hyperbole right. as it's describing Joshua's conquests. And because um, you kind of come away reading Joshua 1 through 12 saying, thinking that perhaps Joshua and the Israelites had taken all the land of the Canaanite. Exactly. But then you read the second half of the book of Joshua, Judges chapter 1, you see that's clearly not the case. But Joshua 1 through 12 is interested in celebrating the initial conquest and isn't interested in detailing all the setbacks or, 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 or failures in the conquest yeah and, and and i mean joshua describes like the the fact that there were uh, if you read it carefully like well there's no one left because they, they slaughtered everybody but then all of a sudden the next right. chapter there's 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 these people sitting there so they yeah. obviously didn't but yeah. but that that isn't that the way that kind of ancient nourishing history was written i mean the other other kingdoms did that did that also with the hyperbole that's right particularly when it comes to battle reports um, right another friend of mine lawson younger at trinity seminary uh, 30 years ago, wrote an excellent and very illuminating uh, doctoral dissertation that was published as a book on ancient Near Eastern battle reports and how they relate, say, to mm. Joshua 1 through 12. Again, one of the biggest um, one of the biggest problems with some readers of the Bible in 21st century America, say, is that we read it as if it's literature that was written last week, right? Not, right. You know, centuries and millennia ago, and so, um, and we we wrongly, uh, when we judge its truthfulness or not, we put standards on the text that we shouldn't put on the text, right? Uh, and and you know, I'm I'm an advocate. I'm I'm a supporter of the idea that the Bible is true in everything it intends to teach right but that means uh but while that means the bible is totally true it doesn't mean our interpretations right are without error right 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 all right well hey your third section then and i appreciate you staying on here to, to kind of cover all this uh, your third section deals with divine violence and and that kind of relates a little bit back to the section on historicity if if the Israelites weren't numbering in the millions, then maybe the violence wasn't as much as we kind of tend to typically think as well. Um, but you, you note there that of your four topics, divine violence is maybe the least controversial amongst evangelicals. At least that's kind of the way I, I, I read it. Uh, what's interesting is the fact that divine violence actually might be one of the more problematic issues for non-believers. It's true. Well, I, I didn't mean to give the impression that it wasn't controversial right. among no, I, evangelicals. Uh, indeed, at least... You know, with, uh, again, Pete in his book, The Bible Tells Me So, or Greg Boyd in his right, right. new book, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, 
kind of and then and then interestingly uh andy stanley the pastor Mm. has recently issued a call or has said we need to unhitch ourselves from the old testament i think he's troubled by Mm, the violence of the old testament too but you're right I, i mean and I think one of the reasons why evangelicals have been troubled by it is because people like Richard Dawkins yeah. pick up uh, that um, that idea and use it against uh, the biblical picture of God. I mean, in order to support his own right. atheism. Right, right. But in my book, I, I'm really addressing those among us who take the Bible seriously and say kind of not so fast um you really can't read the bible in a way that removes god from violence and and that's true not just of the old testament but also of the new testament mm. and that's what people like andy stanley don't really understand that if you unhitch yourself from the old testament mm-hmm. you're ultimately going to find large parts of the new testament distasteful too Hmm. like the book of revelation Mm -hmm. and so how are you going to um and and then too you gotta remember that the new testament is permeated with references to the old testament right that's its foundation and you can't understand the new testament without the old testament right so yeah yeah, yeah. This, 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 I would, I would push back a little bit personally. By the way, on the Book of Revelation, I'm not sure that Revelation is really about wrath. Uh, I think the theme in the Revelation is that wrath actually doesn't bring repentance, and that it's actually the sacrificial witness of God's people that does. Um, but nonetheless, the issue of wrath still permeates the New Testament. It's still, you know, the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven, as, as Romans says, etc. So, um, yeah. Right, can yeah. you can you summarize then for us, for, for the listeners here, how you explain passages where um, God commands the Israelites to slaughter whole communities? You know, how, how do we deal with that? Yeah, well, first of all, let me agree that it's, uh, it's very difficult, um, especially for us in the, in the rather peaceful mm-hmm. 21st century West. Non-tribal. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, but on the other, or not even a matter of tribe, I'm thinking in terms of even people today who are living in heavily persecuted mm, okay. area, right. uh, areas of, you know, say, in what used to be ISIS-dominated Syria. Right. Uh, you know, they didn't have the same qualms we had about the possibility that God might come and judge, you know, their their oppressors and those who are harming them in such egregious ways. Um, that said, it's very difficult. Uh, but I would remind people, and Paul Copen does a good job of this yeah. too in his book, um, Is God a Moral uh, Monster? That, you know, it wasn't, the Canaanites had options. <laughs> One option was to flee, another option was to. Uh, joined the Israelite side like say uh, Rahab did and again I think that that's probably just one story that was repeated many many times because we get a lot of non-Hebrew names later in Mm. Old Testament history Um, and um, and so um, and and again it, it would be wrong to characterize this as a kind of an ethnic genocide but as Paul Copen also points out in his book it is a kind of religious it is a the bible 
the Bible presents it as an act of moral judgment against the sinful Canaanites whose sinfulness has is systemic mm. and um, and that's based on you know what God says to Abraham back in Genesis 15 verse 16 you know this land is yours but not now because mm-hmm. the sin of the Canaanites is not yet fulfilled okay so um, so again um, whenever God is depicted as bringing violence it's always connected to his judgment whether that violence is coming against Canaanites or the Israelites themselves or at, or on unbelievers at the end of time so so it's a hard it's a hard and uncomfortable teaching of mm-hmm. scripture but we also can't escape it i have a great quote in my book or at least i think it's a great quote <laughs> from miroslav volf um miroslav volf who's a theologian at yale yeah, right. who grew up in the former yugoslavia you know where there were the horrible um wars he grew up and saying i used to think that a god of love couldn't be a god of wrath but then i came to realize in the light of the atrocities that were being perpetrated on my people that god couldn't be a god of love unless he was wrathful mm. sort of towards some of them for their actions right, and it's right. uh i think it's a very powerful quote mm. yeah, interesting now at the end of the of this section you ask the question you know what about us today and then you note that quote christians should never use physical violence to further the gospel or in the name of Christ. So how do you arrive at this conclusion, and can you speak to the kind of the apparent incongruity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which I know you spoke to a little bit already, but if yeah. you clarify yeah. for us. Yeah, so so I don't want to give the impression, and I don't in my right. book, right, that, right. Uh, that, <clears throat> that there's not also discontinuity along with continuity between the Old and New Testaments. And one thing that is very, very clear is that when Jesus comes, he heightens and intensifies the warfare. So it's directed not toward, you know, flesh and blood enemies, but toward the spiritual powers and authority. Mm -hmm. And that these spiritual powers and authorities are defeated, not by killing, but by Jesus's death and resurrection. And so, um, so we couldn't get more clear teaching then in a place like Ephesians 6.10 and following, you know, put on the whole armor of God for our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and authority. Um, now, and also we might consider uh, John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist is picking up on the expectation at the end of the Old Testament that one like the Son of Man will be riding the clouds and mm. and bringing an end to uh, the, you know, horrific uh, beasts that are pictured in the first part of Daniel 7. Right. So he has this expectation mm. of a warring Messiah when he baptizes Jesus. You'll remember he said, um, you know, this one will take the axe to the rotten wood. Mm. He will gather all the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire. But Jesus goes out and he he heals the sick, he right. exercises demons, he preaches the good news. John thinks he's baptized the wrong guy, so he <laughs> sends up two disciples in Matthew 11 
but Jesus says more of the same and says, tell John what you've seen. Right. So um, John the Baptist was a prophet. He spoke true words, but he didn't understand really how his words would play out. He didn't realize that Christ was going to come a second time. And so um, it's in that uh, second coming that Jesus will bring ultimate judgment against all rebellious and sinful humans and spiritual powers and authority. So, so it's uh, in my book. I talk about how God as a warrior plays out in basically five phases right. from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation, and there's continuity there as well as discontinuity. Excellent. Now, let me let me touch on another topic that might be a little bit more controversial, even still. And and, and but before we move to the final section, see, some advocate today, and this is a loaded question. I think you know what's coming. Uh, that since the Israelites conquered the land in the Old Testament by violence, that there's no problem with modern Israel using violence to conquer the Holy Land today. Yeah, though there's a lot of problems with yeah. that. Uh, first of all, remember what I just said about God heightening and intensifying and. You know, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane telling Peter to put away right. uh, your sword. But then also your question raises the whole issue of how does modern right. political Israel relate to, to biblical Israel. Right. And I'm of the school of thought to say that it doesn't. So, uh, right. so that might take another book to address. <laughs> I've already I, written that book. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, very well. Let's move forward. So the last section you deal with the issue of sexuality. And uh, you, you, I, I think you do an excellent job, by the way. I, I really felt like you handled the issue really, really well, especially because we know that such a, a, a minefield, um, anytime the church speaks out against the traditional view of sexuality or in favor of the traditional view of sexuality, uh, unfortunately, it's perceived by others uh, in, in a negative light. And sometimes it's our fault. Um, but I, I've affirmed, I just want to affirm first off that you really handle this section with just a very ironic tone. Um, uh, and I hope that people accept the words that you have here in the loving manner in which you presented them. And I, and I, it's a little bit easier for me. I, I know you well enough to know how much you really care and, and, and genuinely believe what you're saying there as well. Um, so, uh, how would you say then that, um, our churches who have not lovingly embraced homosexuals as persons, how, how can we, how can we handle this issue issue better? Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a complicated question. Thank you for your comments about sure. it. I, I, I did find it the most difficult yeah. section to write, but not because the Bible, in my opinion, isn't pretty straightforward on the issue. Right. And I find unconvincing to the extreme recent attempts to kind of uh, reread uh, certain key passages right. but also on the other hand because we all know and love uh, gay people and right. friends and relatives and and we also know that there are a bunch of same sex attracted and sexually active uh, LGBTQ uh, people who who have a, a, a devout relationship with God mm -hmm. and I don't think we should deny right. that but um, but so that's the first thing we should recognize and we should also recognize that we are 
sinners ourselves. Uh, we're all broken people. And if we approach this question or any question with a sort of self-righteous yeah. attitude, then then we're going to be on the side of the Pharisees rather than on the <laughs> side of Jesus. Exactly. Uh, we, uh, but um, but we, be, we should begin by, I mean, I remember... 30, 40, you know, 30, I'm old enough to remember 30, 40 years ago that if, uh, you know, there were Christian parents whose children would come out as gay, they'd kick them out of the house yeah. or they would, uh, the church would just immediately, you know, ask them to leave or feel uncomfortable about it. Uh, so, so we need to develop uh, a real welcoming and loving attitude Though it does become difficult uh, when it comes to things like church membership, right? And and um, and uh, you know, when I wrote the book, I I sent it to some of my pastoral friends. Uh, I won't name them here, <laughs> uh, though, because you know who they were, right? Right. But uh, but they and they and they, especially two of them. Uh, you know, sort of pointed out that the difficulty that they would have with their particular church structure was that if somebody was active in a same-sex relationship, and first of all, they wouldn't deny that they were Christian, right. uh, but it'd be hard for them to be a member of their church because they'd come under church discipline right away. So I guess I, I don't have all the answers. Yeah, yeah. I, I just well, know that while we... I don't think the Bible will allow us to affirm the behavior. We have to think about how we can love and how we can welcome and encourage people. And then I also talk about um, some people I consider real heroes in this whole uh, discussion. People yeah. like Wesley Hill and Ed Shaw and Sam Alberry and others who who have chosen celibacy. Right. Um, and and that's a real sacrifice on yeah. their part. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if I can if I can add, by the way, I think the church needs to to to, to address in terms of church discipline issues of of heterosexual infidelity that right. that's going oh, on yeah. as well. Well, it, just as much. Consistency. Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. Now, you argue that the biblical ethic on sexuality um, in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament is kind of moving towards what's called an Edenic ideal. Can you explain here what you mean by this Edenic ideal? Sure, um, and I and and I very much uh, I I learned a lot from William Webb yes. in his excellent book, uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. Yes, where and he has a recent book out on corporeal punishment. He has a Correct. another book coming out. I, he's doing some more writing these days, but right. uh, he rightly points out, uh, and he's not the first, but he's the one who. Uh, has been most influential on my thinking that the Old Testament case law clearly is not establishing God's ideal, what I call God's Edenic ideal, uh, by which I mean I go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and mm -hmm. see, you know, what God's creation intentions were for men and women and their relationship to the world and so forth. And that... Um, that what the case law often does is take people, the laws that follow the Ten Commandments, apply the principles of the Ten Commandments to specific situations, but it's not 
mandating uh, God's Edenic ideal, but rather taking them where they are and moving them toward that right, ideal. Right. So we see that when when Jesus says about divorce, you know, Moses said you could divorce your wife for virtually any reason because of the hardness of your heart. But now that I'm here, he implies now it's going to be harder uh, to get a divorce. Right. And yeah. so, so some of the Old Testament laws actually get more, um, in one sense, we would say restrictive rather than progressive. Right. But, uh, but when it comes to, say, women and slavery, there is a movement from the Old Testament into the New Testament toward that Edenic ideal. Right. This liber- and, a, liberate, uh, a liberating view. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at, at Genesis 2, you see uh, the man and the woman are equal. There's nothing like slavery. You can't right. imagine slavery, uh, nor patriarchy. And so, um, so again, I think Webb rightly says in those areas, the New Testament also gives us a mandate to move toward even more equal relationships between men and women and between human beings. So the ultimate ab- abolition of slavery. Right. Um, and but he also points out that you don't get that kind of movement when it comes to say homosexual behavior right it goes in the other direction things on this scale of incremental ethics you have to think about it and you have to think about issues of continuity and discontinuity between the old and new testaments so i talk about that in my book uh because it's because a lot of people will say well you know what about slavery and women right why are we observing these laws concerning homosexuality and that's an important question to address and i do in my book yeah 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 i too have really benefited a lot a lot from william webb's work uh, on that also now yeah let's bring up a question because i i know it's not but it seems like there's an apparent inconsistency here it seems like you're allowing for a change to tradition when it comes to evolutionary science but when it comes to issues of sexuality, you're you're kind of going back in the other direction. So culture is going one direction with evolution, and you're jumping with it. But it's, it's also going in a direction with right. You know, I'm going with sexuality, but you're not going with it. Uh, yeah. Well, a couple comments uh, going back to something I said earlier. Um, again, I'm not arguing that the Bible teaches evolution. Right. I'm arguing that the Bible doesn't address the question. So even if evolution should, by some uh, yeah. miracle, turn out not to be true, it wouldn't change my interpretation of Genesis. Right. Um, and um, and so and and again, the other thing I'd point out is uh, the reading of Genesis that I'm offering isn't a new innovation. Uh, right. Yeah, we talked about how it's uh, Augustine and Origen and others have a similar one though though of course they're not trying to defend evolution right right now um so so uh again my my comment on homosexuality is is based on the fact that you don't have that kind of you can't look back more than 30 years ago and see uh church fathers or Mm -hmm. reformation theologians or medieval theologians or even early modern theologians offering the kind of interpretations of biblical texts that you know the the 
the technical term are, is queer interpreters are giving us right. these days. Right. And uh, so the the bar is high. It's not mm-hmm. impossible that we've been blindly misreading the text uh, until recently, but I I don't. I, I have not yet been convinced that that is the case. Right, right. And, and there's a difference also, because the Bible, as you said, is not, it's not addressing evolutionary science, but it is addressing right. the issue of sexuality. Yes. So you yeah, have a clear teaching. A yeah, you have a clear teaching on the issue of sexuality that, that you can't mitigate against just because culture might be going in a certain direction. Now, I really appreciate what you said on page 253 and that you're talking about Christians refusing service to gay couples. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but that actually the the Supreme Court decision actually was regarding a case that happened here in Bakersfield. Um, Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I I personally believe that when we offer the same service to anyone, regardless of their sexuality, whatever might be going on, uh, we're not necessarily approving of the event, but we're simply respecting them as persons and respecting them as customers and, and validating them as human beings. Right. I, I agree wholeheartedly right. uh, about that. I, I just think that um, sometimes when when we, in essence, sort of foist our values on others, that we kind of undermine our own credibility. I mean, we need to stand firm yes. in our own beliefs and in our own behavior, but... Uh, but I always have been deeply affected by a comment by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the previous generation, mm-hmm. who said basically to the effect of God doesn't want non-Christians to act like Christians. He wants them to be Christians. Exactly, exactly. So, so I, think, I think Christians need to be very careful in their efforts to make non-Christians act like Christians. Exactly. And that leads to my last question on this particular topic, and that is, what, what do you think of the idea that we, or, or any country at all, should kind of legislate sexual ethics, like, for example, making gay marriage illegal? Or, or how do we stand on, that, on a topic like that? Well, you know, I do think that in a modern democracy like ours, we should vote our values right. and support our values. Um, but on the other hand, um, and, and we should be interested in, in healthy sexuality Correct. for even our non-believing neighbors. On the other hand, when the culture decides to go a different direction as they have on same-sex marriage, um, we shouldn't be all that concerned about it right. again because we need to, we need to follow biblical teaching on sexuality we need to make sure the church is pure um but we shouldn't be as concerned that our nation state is acting like the church yeah they're acting like the nation state i mean they are what exactly yeah yeah and by the way my the book i'm just finishing up since that what the one that we're talking about now isn't controversial enough (laughs) is on the bible and public policy so i'm I'm writing on on same-sex marriage, immigration, abortion, climate change. <laughs> oh, good. Just a couple simple topics that won't stir up yeah, any conflict exactly. with the evangelical church. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, hey, let me ask a couple quick questions here in closing then, and I appreciate all your time here for us. Um, how has your study or knowledge of the Old Testament really enhanced your personal walk with Christ? Well, I mean, it has enhanced my walk with Christ because I... I come to know God better. I come to 
uh, know Jesus better, because remember mm-hmm. in Luke 24, uh, Jesus said all the scriptures by which he meant the Old Testament right. anticipated his coming. So the more I learn about God, the more I, I grow in my relationship with him. Mm. Wonderful. Now, uh, last thought, and, and maybe kind of two parts to this question. Evangelicals tend to be, especially very conservative evangelicals, uh, concerned with interpreting the Bible literally at all times. And, and I, I think that this is kind of out of fear. And I say that my own personal background, kind of growing up in a strong fundamentalist evangelical background. Uh, there's this fear that someone's going to come along and interpret it so symbolically or that we ultimately eliminate Jesus from the story, right? I mean, if Genesis isn't literal, then maybe Jesus isn't literal. So the safest thing to do is kind of have this this wooden literalness. Well, you consider yourself an evangelical, and you seem to have a very high view of Jesus and the Scriptures. So how do you approach, or how do you at least encourage us to approach the interpretation of the Scriptures? Well, the first thing I would remind people is uh, the Bible, while one book is composed of many different books, and that... um, and that not all the books are the same. There are different, we used the term earlier, genres, and genre triggers reading strategy. If we simply read every biblical book as if it is one type of book, we're going to misread it. Right. So our goal should be to hear the voice of God, and it takes some study. Mm-hmm. I, I know American evangelicals, uh, you know, think that all they have to do is pick up their Bible and read it. They don't need to do any serious study or <laughs> right, anything. Right. But that's a big, big mistake. <laughs> yes, it is. Let alone they can't read the, th- the text unless someone translates it for them into English anyways, right? Yeah, as somebody uh, who was, uh, spent a good part of his career uh, doing Bible translation, for virtually every translation you're your audiences reading, <laughs> I can tell you we made thousands. We make thousands of interpretive decisions right. while we're translating. Right, right, right. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with me, and I, uh, I, I we're going to have to maybe get together in Philadelphia for the Eagles Pats game this uh, this year in November. But uh, That'd be fun. Uh, it would be fun if we can't pull that off. I'll hopefully see you in San Diego in November, and I'll be happy to take you out to lunch. Lovely. That's great, Rob. I'd uh, love that. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to talking with you some more, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.